0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Wednesdays with Wesley. My name is Bob Kaler, pastor of Tri-Lakes United Methodist Church in Monument, Colorado, and this is our weekly deep dive into one of the sermons of John Wesley. And this week's sermon, I think, is the kind of sermon that every pastor wants to preach at some point in their ministry. This is the kind of sermon where you want to Sort of vent your spleen about what's really important. And it's the kind of sermon, especially you would give if you knew you were not going to be preaching again in a particular place and you wanted to kind of say the last word. And that's, in effect, what Wesley does here with the sermon Scriptural Christianity. This is one of the most pointed sermons in the Wesleyan canon. And it's where Wesley really gives the ground of what he's talking about when he's talking about holiness and spreading scriptural holiness across the land. That was Methodism's mission. And by the time this sermon is preached, Wesley has been seeing this happen. He's been preaching in the open air for a while, and this mission is the singular focus of his life. Actually, I love that Mission statement: spreading scriptural holiness across the land. I think that should be the mission statement for any new Methodist denomination. That's me, and uh, that's my opinion. Uh, but I think Wesley would would certainly embrace that because this movement of God's grace and God's spirit would cause change not only in individuals but change in communities and in nations. I was doing a little bit of reading in some of Tom Oden's work, and he talks about the difference between what happens in France in the late 18th century versus what happens in England, where France tried to do social change by a lot of ideological kind of movements, kind of social change kind of movements, trying to do it on a grand scale. Whereas in England and here in America... One of the things the Methodist movement was a catalyst for was talking about personal responsibility, the change of heart of individuals and groups of people that would then lead to societal change. And I think this is relevant for us today because so many movements in our political landscape want to do, sea change for social issues to create a society in their particular political party's image, whereas as Christians, we believe that change happens from person to person as disciples are made and as those movements begin to spread. And so that idea of spreading scriptural holiness across the land becomes very, very important. And it becomes so important to Wesley that he is willing to break ties with those who will not go with him. And he's going to confront the kind of nominal Christianity that reforms neither people nor their communities. So when I read this sermon, it speaks to me about where we are today, because Wesley's speaking to a group of people. This sermon is given at St. Mary's Church in Oxford to the university. It's the last sermon that Wesley preaches to the University of Oxford, and we'll see why here in a moment. But he's he's not pulling any punches when he talks about nominal Christianity. And he's asking what true scriptural Christianity is and why it has to be the ground of any Christian movement going forward. So this again is preached at St. Mary's Church in Oxford, August twenty-fourth, seventeen forty-four. And the text is from Acts chapter four, thirty-one. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, that's the NRSV version. Wesley would have said, filled with the Holy Ghost, and he's going to use that because that phrase for Wesley associates the beginning of holiness. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is the beginning of holiness. It's at that point then, Wesley says, the energy of Satan ends and holiness begins and that's what this sermon is about about scriptural holiness about the scripture way for uh, life and the way the christian movement should progress now i've had the opportunity to go to st mary's i've been in oxford a couple times uh, back when i was doing my sabbatical in 2018 i actually spent 2 weeks studying at at oxford at christ church college doing the oxford summer school of theology and I loved taking time to just walk around Oxford and spent a couple of, of hours kind of traversing around St. Mary's Church, the university church there, and seeing the, the pulpit that's there. It's not the original pulpit. It's not the pulpit that Wesley would have preached from. This particular pulpit there was placed in the 19th century, but it does give you a sense of Wesley preaching before the gathered Audience there of Oxford dons and, and Oxford students and and really bringing a sermon that's going to cause a lot of anxiety among the university. Now, this is the third of three sermons that John Wesley preaches at St. Mary's. He preaches salvation by Faith, which we've read already. That was from June eleventh seventeen thirty eight shortly after Wesley's Aldersgate experience. He preaches the almost Christian, which we've also looked at. He preached that on July 25th, 1741, and then scriptural Christianity here on August 24th, 1744. Charles, his brother, preached one sermon at St. Mary's, Awake Thou That Sleepest, which we've referenced. He preached that on April 4th, 1742. And Wesley, going into this sermon, seems to know that it's the last time he's going to preach there. And his his sermon has that quality, that kind of, if you have one sermon to give and you don't want to hold anything back, that you're willing to cross the Rubicon, if you will, with a particular congregation, this is the sermon that Wesley's going to deliver. So he knows what he's about when he steps into the pulpit. And he's going to be talking about primitive Christianity, which is a favorite topic of his and about comparing primitive Christianity, the the Christianity of the apostles, the Christianity of the New Testament, with Christianity as it currently stood there in Oxford. Or if we read the sermon, we might ask the same questions about how our own Christian walk, our own Christian churches, our own Christian gatherings reflect primitive Christianity. And Wesley's primary focus here is about the fact that the church was birthed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Of course, we look at Pentecost, which is coming up here in another month from now, as I'm recording this, and that's kind of seen as the birthday of the church, the the giving of the Holy Spirit. But Wesley asked the question, why was the Holy Spirit given? And his response to that is to say that it was not given merely to give the early church, the gifts of the Spirit, or what we call the extraordinary gifts, the kind of gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10. So often when we think about spiritual gifts, and I've been as guilty of this as anyone, we think of the kind of stuff that you can put in an inventory. I know we used to do this with our new member classes. We give people a spiritual gifts inventory, see whether they had one of the the gifts of prophecy or or healing or or things like that 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 we could determine then where people might fit best when they serve in the church or we might be able to help them stoke those gifts the problem with that though is that we tend to focus on the extraordinary gifts and not so much on the ordinary gifts there's another gift list of course that that God gave some to be apostles and teachers from ephesians um, that apest kind of way of thinking to use an acronym. Uh, but but what Wesley's really talking about in this particular sermon is the the ordinary gifts that are given to all Christians. The more excellent purpose for which all people were are filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian and filled with the Holy Spirit, these gifts are going to be common to all. That's what Wesley's really focusing on here. He says that. God distributes those ordinary gifts with a sparing hand and only to some in the early church. But there are certain gifts that are given to all. So Wesley's not offering a spiritual gift inventory here. He's not saying to the faculty and students of Oxford, find your particular spiritual gift and live into that. He's saying, no, these are the things that should be present in any community where the Holy Spirit is at work. And so the primary gift of that Holy Spirit, Wesley says, is the mind which was in Christ. That when the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples at Pentecost, it begins to shape them into people who reflect the mind and the way of Christ. Wesley says, Those holy fruits of the Spirit, whichsoever hath not, is none of his. Whosoever hath not is not One of his. So, if you don't have these particular fruits of the spirit, you don't belong to Christ because these are the basic attributes of Christ. And he points to the fruit of the spirit in Galatians five twenty two: love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness. To endue them with faith, meekness, and temperance. That's the idea of the Holy Spirit. It shapes a community after Christ. And not only does it shape the community with those positive attributes, it also excludes some of the negative attributes. It enables the community of faith and enables individuals within it to crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts, its passions and desires. And so this gift of the Holy Spirit creates an inward change that fulfills all outward righteousness. We're changed from the inside out. Now, again, it's not that the extraordinary gifts are unimportant. I would argue that they are important. Wesley would argue the same thing. The problem is we tend to focus on them, and we don't focus on the ordinary fruits that are common to all believers. So if we want to say, what kind of Christian should we be? Wesley would say, someone who reflects the fruit of the Spirit. And so the Spirit is at work. In the individual and in the church and in the world. And so Wesley's going to focus on, in this sermon, on how these ordinary fruits first exist in individuals, then how they spread from one individual to another, and then how through that spread they cover the whole earth. In other words, how does scriptural holiness get spread across the land? It's a fruit of the Spirit, of these ordinary gifts of the Spirit being manifest from individual to individual, and then spreading throughout the earth. Again, we've often focused on discerning spiritual gifts with a focus on extraordinary, but Wesley has a theology of the Spirit that is for everyone. And these are the common gifts that are given to all of us. So how does this work? Well, Wesley develops the sermon in this way. He begins with the Holy Spirit in individuals. That in, in the rise of Christianity, he posits that suppose one heard Peter preaching. We remember that famous speech in Acts chapter 2, that sermon that takes place on Pentecost. And it says that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. What does that mean? They were convicted of sin. They repented. They received faith. They received the witness of the Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, as Wesley would call it. And once that spirit has been received, what are the effects of that spirit? The Holy Spirit present with us. Well, Wesley says again that the, one of the attributes, some of the attributes of the presence of the Holy Spirit are faith, assurance, peace, no fear of evil or death, the renewal of the soul in righteousness and true holiness and hope. Last time we talked about the marks of the new birth, those are kind of all bound up in this presence of the Spirit. They're the results of that. That's the beginning of the work in us, that we begin to be changed from the inside out. And we begin to have, here's this phrase again, Romans five. 5 Wesley's definition of a Methodist, the love of God shed abroad by the Holy Spirit, which was given unto him. We have the love of God made manifest and present and, and moving outward from us because of the Holy Spirit's presence with us. And so we love God and we love neighbor. You're hearing this consistent theme as we go through Wesley's sermons. He comes back to this theme over and over again because this is really the goal. But also, one of the, the results of having the Spirit or receiving the Spirit is humility and power over sin. We recognize our state before God. We recognize our need for a Savior, and we receive power over sin, as we've been talking about and will continue to talk about. We're saved, Wesley says, from every temper which was not in Christ. And so we, we begin to be reshaped. Our mind, our, our desires, our thoughts begin to be shaped after Christ. That's one of the results of the Holy Spirit coming upon an individual. And we cultivate that gift of the Holy Spirit through continuing the daily ordinances of God, the means of grace, which we're going to talk about in an upcoming sermon. It's not just about abstaining from evil, but about doing good. That's how Christianity was in its rise. Wesley says that these people developed habits, habits of holiness, that enabled the spirit to work within them gave them handles for growth we think of acts 2 and acts 242 to 47 they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to the breaking of bread and to prayers those are holy habits those are means of grace and so it's it's about not just saying we, we don't do bad things, but we actually add these holy habits. Again, it's, as Chalmers says, it was the expulsive power of a new affection. Such was Christianity in its rise, Wesley says. It was, it was a movement of the Spirit that excluded sin and brokenness and began to fill people with new tempers, new desires to be more like Christ and to reflect the love of Christ and have that love shed abroad to the world. But, and as that happened, then Christianity began to spread from individual to individual and began to grow. It was God's will that Christianity should spread from the first followers to others, gradually making its way into the world. And so these people who had come to love God and love their neighbor began to be concerned for what Wesley calls the whole world lying in wickedness. We began to get, have a heart for people. The early church began to have a heart for the lost. And so they did good even when others did not do good to them. And at the same time, they warned people to flee from the wrath to come and to escape the damnation of hell. It's kind of a both and here. So often Christian preaching, Christian theology tends to focus on either really being good or saving people from hell. Wesley's, again, a kind of conjunctive theology that brings those two things together it's about doing all the good we can the second general rule but also warning people to flee from the wrath to come in fact that was the primary requirement for joining the methodist society was a desire to flee from the wrath to come and so these early christians spoke to every person as he had need those who needed awakening those groaning under the wrath of god those who were the natural and legal man, as we've seen in previous sermons, and provoking everyone who believed to good works, to becoming the evangelical man or the person who really reflects the fullness of Christ in his or her life. And so as a result, the church grew. It grew exponentially. Uh, Again, I was reading Alan Kreider's book on The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. It's a marvelous book. I highly recommend it on the catechesis of the early church. And it was really focused on character formation, particularly character formation around the Sermon on the Mount, cultivating that love of Christ, cultivating the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, as they would move outward in practical terms, how we deal with things like anger, how we deal with money, how we deal with with others. How we love our enemies, which is a major part of loving our neighbor for both Jesus and for John Wesley, that's really one of the true tests tests, actually. And so the church began to grow, even though it was a persecuted minority, because they offered an alternative to the prevailing worldview. And just an aside, I would argue that we are increasingly living in a culture very much like the first century church was living in, very much like 18th century Methodism was living in, where they were kind of a persecuted minority, and yet people were drawn to them because they lived a different kind of lifestyle. And because they lived that different kind of lifestyle, there were also a number of people who were offended by what they were doing because they were so different. We talk about cancel culture. That was true in the early church. It was true in early Methodism. It will be true of us if we're truly following the way of Christ. And so the more Christianity spread, Wesley argues, the more that primitive Christianity spread, the more hurt was done to those who did not receive it. And so persecution arose in all of its forms. But Wesley says that persecution shook the pillars of hell and the kingdom of God spread more and more. Their suffering spake to all the world, Wesley says. So their persecution was actually the catalyst for this growth because people saw what was happening and they recognized that these Christians were not retaliating. They were continuing to live lives of love and they wondered what kind of people this was that continued to forgive people and love people even as they were sent to the lions or burned at the stake or what have you. A powerful witness that I think should speak to us in our own time. And as this Christianity spread, though, soon did the tares appear with the wheat, Wesley says. So as the church began to grow, there was endemic to that process, kind of a, a pushback from some within it. How soon did Satan find a seat even in the temple of God, Wesley says. And there was increasing corruption of the faith and diminishment of its power. We see this as early as the New Testament, as the Apostle Paul talks a lot about dealing with false teachers who are trying to alter the gospel message, trying to alter the way that people uh, live out the Christian way. We see him in Galatians talking about people who want, uh, you know, Christians, Gentile Christians to be circumcised before they can become part of the community of faith. They need to become Jews before they become Christians. Christians, so forth. We begin to see all kinds of other heresies arise in the early church, from Gnosticism to a whole lot of other things that are being addressed, not only by Paul, but in many of the epistles in the New Testament, in in an attempt to kind of diminish Christianity's power, to make it more palatable, to make it easier to follow, and so forth. And I think Wesley focuses on this, and Tom Oden makes this point in his book, John Wesley's scriptural Christianity. And I'd never made the connection to this, but when Wesley preaches this sermon in August of 1744, earlier that year, and for the most of 1743, Wesley and the Methodists had endured their own time of persecution. And this is largely centered around what are called the Wensbury Riots. And the history of the Wensbury riots is interesting. It's also kind of disturbing about what took place. We read a lot about John Wesley preaching in the open air and being pelted with fruit and rocks and all kinds of other things. This actually went a little bit further. And there was a vicar in Wensbury named Edward Eggington who apparently eggs on the crowd there in Winsbury, which is a a mining community. And Roger Lease, uh, who wrote an article about this, says that Eggington was an unscrupulous man committed almost to the point of obsession to destroy a movement that threatened the cozy complacency of religious life in his parish. Now, that may be an oversimplification, painting Eggington as uh, an instigator. But if you read into the story, you recognize that In some ways, some of John Wesley's lay preachers may have contributed to this process because they were giving pretty pointed critiques against Eggington and his ilk, those Anglican priests in that region. And so perhaps Eggington is himself being egged on by these critiques and causes this to happen. Whatever the cause and whatever took place, it was a kind of a vicious time of persecution in the Methodist movement. And Wesley, may have this in mind as he steps into the pulpit at St. Mary's. And in fact, those listening to him may have thought about this as well. He had already kind of gained a reputation as a bit of a rabble rouser. He'd been preaching outdoors since 1739, which was considered to be a vile thing to do. Preaching was supposed to take place in churches, and here was Wesley preaching in the open air. And this was one of the results of that. So he has this in the back of his mind and is thinking about the early church and in many ways, kind of comparing the the early Methodist movement to that movement of uh, primitive Christianity. And because he knows this and because everybody sitting in that particular audience on August 24th, 1744 knows this, Wesley is not going to be shy about making the comparison and calling these people who are the establishment, who are the, the Anglican elite, if you will, to a different way of thinking about their Christian faith, to not have a complacent faith, but to go back and evaluate themselves based on this idea of primitive Christianity, based on the presence of the Holy Spirit. So Wesley asks the question, shall we not see greater things than these? Shall we not see greater things than these corruptions of Christianity? this, This watering down of it. Can Satan cause the truth of God to fail, he asks. He says, well, if not, the time will come when Christianity will prevail over all and cover the earth. Spreading scriptural holiness across the land. Wesley believes that's possible. And he's going to invite these Oxford Dons and their students to imagine a Christian world, a world that is full of God's goodness, a world that is full of the spirit, a world that is covered in scriptural holiness. He quotes from Romans 11, that God has not cast away his people, but is working so that salvation can come to the Gentiles. Again, again, Wesley sees Christianity as all of us who read the New Testament and read the Bible as a whole begin to see God's promise to Abraham coming true, that God promised Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Wesley really believes that's part of the deal, that, that this scriptural Christianity is going to cover the earth. And imagine what would happen if that was the case, he asks. We would see righteousness, justice, and mercy found. We'd see the destruction of evil. We'd hear no unkind or deceptive words, but there would be wisdom and kindness. Because when God reigns, he will cause every heart to overflow with love and every mouth with praise. And all of this, he says, begins with the movement of the Holy Spirit. So imagine that kind of world. That's what we're called to imagine as Christians and as Methodists, a world full of the fullness of God, full of the presence of God and the presence of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what we work for. That's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So Wesley paints this. Optimistic and biblical view of the way the world is supposed to be, what Christianity's logical outcome will be. But then he gets to the point and the practical application, and he asks the question where does this Christianity now exist? Where does this Christianity exist where people are filled with the Holy Spirit, where people are actually being changed, where nations are turning to the Lord? He asked the question, where I pray do these Christians live? Which is the country the inhabitants whereof are all thus filled with the Holy Ghost? Is there such a thing as a Christian nation? Now, remember, Wesley is saying this in the midst of a country and in the midst of one of the great educational institutions of that country, ostensibly a Christian nation with a state church, and is basically saying to them, where is this country? Is there such a thing as a Christian country? If there is, this isn't it. Are all of one heart and soul? Is there generosity? Do one and all have the love of God filling their hearts and constraining them to love their neighbors as themselves? Why then let us confess, Wesley says, that we have never yet seen a Christian country upon earth. That really is a high standard. We like to think of America as a Christian nation. A lot of people want to use that, that term. By Wesley's definition, by a biblical definition, Wesley would say, we've never seen it. And I think he's right about that. I think we have seen cultural Christianity. I think we've seen the trappings of Christendom, where Christianity is kind of tied up with politics or, or tied up into a way of being seen as being decent people Or we're not another religion, therefore we must be Christian. Perhaps we engage in some Judeo Christian values, but Wesley's definition of Christianity is far more robust than that. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's the presence of the fruits of the Spirit. Do we see that in our own country? Indeed, he's gonna ask, do we even see that right here in Oxford? We might ask, do we see that in our own churches? Do we see it in our own towns? And so it's no wonder that Wesley assumes that those sitting there are going to think of him as a madman for speaking this, because he's really pushing against their understanding of themselves. And they have a pretty high opinion of themselves. They think they're good enough. Most people think they're good enough. Moralistic therapeutic deism, which Christian Smith argues is the predominant religion of our culture believes that most people are good and that everything is just about being good and being happy. And Wesley's pushing against that and pushing them to a different standard. And they have to think he's losing it if they didn't already think that because of his preaching out of doors and the riots and all those kinds of things. But Wesley says it is utterly needful that someone should use great plainness of speech towards you. In other words, the way we might put it is, it's about time somebody told you the truth. It is especially needful at this time, Wesley says, for who knoweth, but it is the last. Here's some eschatological urgency. Who knows if this is the last moment you're going to hear this call to holiness. Now, of course, in terms of Oxford, this would be the last time Wesley would issue that call in front of this body but he's exuding this eschatological urgency. He says, And I adore you by the living God. I adjure you by the living God that you steal not your breasts against receiving this blessing at my hands. In other words, you may not like the messenger, but here's the message. And so we see Wesley kind of taking on the energy of Paul here. Remember in Acts 26, 24, Paul is before Festus, and he's telling Festus about christ and about the witness of what he has done and seen and festus says to him you are out of your mind paul too much learning is driving you insane wesley's perfectly happy to be lumped in with paul around that and to be seen as a madman for speaking the truth and so he gives an appeal brethren i am persuaded better things of you but i must speak he says i believe you can be better but I need to speak my mind and I need to speak the truth right now. And he begins to ask a series of questions. Is this city a Christian city? Is scriptural Christianity found here? Now, again, he's not talking about contested ideas or new theologies. He's talking about basic, scriptural, common, primitive Christianity. Is that Christianity to be found here, in this place, in this city? Are you filled with the Holy Ghost? Are all the thoughts of your hearts, all your tempers and desires suitable to your high calling? Are all your words like unto those which come out of the mouth of God? Do you continually remind those under your care, he's talking to the faculty here about students, that the one rational end of all of our studies is to know, love, and serve the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent? What a powerful statement. Do you who are teachers recognize your Grand calling here to help your students know and love and serve the only true God in Jesus Christ. Wesley knows that not all the students sitting there are going to be clergy, but all of them are intended to be Christians. Thus, the example of the faculty is important, and he's calling them out. Do these faculty abound in the fruit of the Spirit? Is this the general character of fellows of the college? And remember, John Wesley is a fellow at Oxford. He's a fellow of Lincoln College, one of the colleges of Oxford. So he's speaking to his peers here, in effect. Do they abound in the fruit of the Spirit? Is this the general character of the fellows? He says, I fear it is not. But they are called to be examples. And Wesley's going to call them out on it. Are we then patterns to the rest in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity? Is there written on our forehead and on our heart, holiness unto the Lord? So Wesley's calling out the need for mentors in the faith and in the fruit of the Spirit. We cannot expect this place to change. We cannot expect Oxford to be different, to exude scriptural holiness, unless it begins with those who are the teachers and mentors of the faith. As I read this, it makes me think that if we were in a more modern context, Wesley might speak to the clergy gathered at an annual conference and ask the question, is that kind of holiness found here among even the clergy? Are we examples to our congregation in word and conversation and charity and spirit and faith and purity? Is there written on our forehead and on our heart, holiness unto the Lord? I think Wesley would have a lot to say about that because those of us who are leaders in the church, both clergy and lay leaders, are to be mentors in the faith and to exude these fruits of the Holy Spirit. So when we read this sermon, we can't do what a lot of people do when they listen to sermons and they always think, wow, I'm glad that doesn't apply to me. My brother-in-law needs to hear that or these professors really needed to hear that. No, this is something that we need to hear And so when I read this sermon, it it cuts me to the heart as a spiritual leader to think about how are we being examples of scriptural holiness. And then Wesley turns his attention to the student body. What shall we say concerning the youth of this place? Have you either the form or the power of Christian godliness? Are you humble, teachable, advisable, obedient, studious? Do you redeem the time? Or do you waste it? Do you keep the Sabbath and worship God? Do you possess your bodies in sanctification and honor? Imagine this speech being given to college students today. Wesley owned his own weight of sin in these things during his own student days. He could say, you know, I wasn't perfect at this when I was a student either. And he swore to observe the customs and statutes of spiritual discipline, but then neglected them like the rest. Remember that the holy club happens when John Wesley is a fellow at Lincoln College. While he's an undergraduate, he is likely as guilty of these things as the students to whom he is talking. So he's giving a testimony in effect. Look, I I was where you were. I did not have the the power of Christian godliness. I only had the form of it. And I wasn't as teachable or advisable or obedient. And now I've discovered a different way. This is the time for you to change. I'm telling you from my experience, this is it. But then he goes a little bit further and he calls them a generation of triflers triflers with God, with one another, and with your own souls. Trifling is a way of saying being flippant, not caring that much. Wasting time, wasting effort, neglecting prayer, neglecting the thought of God in conversation, not becoming acquainted with the work of the Spirit, not paying attention to the Christian life. That's what it means to be a generation of triflers. Distracted by many other things, involved in many other pursuits, but not pursuing holiness. So Wesley asked the question, what religion are you of? Even the talk of Christianity you cannot, will not bear. Oh, my brethren, what a Christian city is this. It is time for thee, Lord, to lay to thine hand. So Wesley pronounces, in effect, a judgment on Oxford, on the faculty and on the students. And then asked, what are the chances that scriptural Christianity could again become the religion of this place? by whom will it be restored? Are you desirous of it? Whom then shall God send? How's it going to take place? How's this transformation going to take place? Maybe Wesley says it'll be a disaster that will cause everyone to turn to the Lord. Maybe it'll be a famine or a pestilence. Wesley calls these the last messengers of God to a guilty land. He's picking up a a scriptural theme here that often people turn to god when they have no place else to turn when disaster overcomes them and we've been through this pandemic in the past year and a lot of people have have turned to god and said what how are you going to help us what what is this that people are starting to have more spiritual awareness or will it be the sword will it be war that brings people back to god will it be loss of life and disaster that causes people to To examine their own state of holiness and want to turn back to God. And he makes a reference here to armies of Romish aliens that may come and force them into it. Now, I I looked this up, and historically, in January of 1744, there was uh, a planned invasion by the Catholic King of France, Louis XV that would have installed a a Jacobite as a Catholic client king of Britain or a a client king of France. You know, they wanted to bring in a, a, a king that would be friendly to France, that would be Catholic, bring, uh, uh, England back to a Roman Catholic way of being. Of course, England had fought a civil war about this. There was the, the reformation after Henry VIII, there was Cromwell and, the the Protestant rebellion and, and all of those kinds of things going back and forth. And so is this what Wesley means by armies of Romish aliens? These This potential French invasion that kind of lost steam in, in January of 1744 because they couldn't figure out how to get across the channel and make, make that kind of invasion stick. But Wesley says it doesn't mean it couldn't happen again. Whatever disaster it might be, That might cause scriptural Christianity to happen. What are the chances that that will actually do it? Whatever it's going to be, Wesley gives this appeal. He said, Lord, save or we perish. Take us out of the mire that we sink not. Oh, help us against these enemies. For vain is the help of man. Unto thee all things are possible. According to the greatness of thy power, preserve thou those who are appointed to die and preserve us in the manner that seems to thee good, not as we will, but as thou wilt. Save us, Lord. Disaster is coming upon us. We don't see this kind of scriptural Christianity. Help us, Lord, to turn back to you. And he's praying this in front of this faculty who are probably in the student body who's sitting there with their mouths agape, Realizing that Wesley has just called them out as not being holy, not really being authentically Christian. And so, as you might imagine, this sermon did not go over well with the Oxford student body or faculty. William Blackstone says that after the sermon, Wesley's notes were demanded by the vice chancellor. But on mature deliberation, it has been thought to punish him by a mortifying neglect. So how were they going to punish Wesley for this pointed sermon? They were going to just simply neglect him when his turn came up to preach again as a fellow of Lincoln College. And by this time, Wesley knew that that time was coming to a close, that he was no longer going to be a fellow of Lincoln, that he was going to be devoting his full time to to field preaching and the Methodist movement. Um, they were just going to neglect him and not give him another opportunity to preach again, which was fine with Wesley, because he knew that this was going to be the last time. In his journal, he said, I preached for the last time before the University of Oxford. See there, even in August of 1744, he knew that was the last time. But he says this, I am now clear of the blood of these men. I have fully delivered my own soul. I have given them Everything that I had, and I have spoken the truth, even though it's going to cost me. And Wesley was willing to pay that cost. And so from here on, we see Wesley make a full time transition from the pulpit to the field, from Oxford Don to itinerant preacher. His pointed and prophetic preaching would turn off the establishment of the Church of England, but it would appeal to the common people. People would come to hear this message of salvation and grace, to hear this message about scriptural holiness and want to be part of it. They would join class and band meetings. And so we begin to see the Methodist movement accelerate from this point. He preached for the first time in the open air again in 1739 and will continue to be a renegade preacher and evangelist for the rest of his life because his focus was not on making people comfortable making religion cozy and easy. What he wanted was the faith of the early church, the faith that was full of the Holy Spirit, reflected the fruit of the Spirit, that was willing to risk and to suffer in order to spread scriptural holiness across the land. I love this sermon because it is so pointed and so convicting It is a a preacher demonstrating great courage and who is living out what he is preaching and inviting others to do so. From, From someone who's not living it out, we would expect this to just be so much smoke and mirrors. But Wesley's scriptural Christianity is a faith that reforms individuals, institutions, and nations. And this focus on holiness. I think is the gift of the Methodist movement. It is our primary function. As Kevin Watson says, this is the reason that Methodism was raised up in Christian history to promote holiness of heart and life. It's a faith and action that's driven by the ordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. And I really believe that as we look ahead to a new Methodism here in the next couple of years, the launch of a new denomination, That it doesn't really matter what you call it or how good your doctrine is or any of that unless we have a clear and pointed emphasis on holiness, on scriptural holiness and spreading scriptural holiness across the land. I I honestly believe that should be the mission statement for any new Methodist denomination that seeks to be authentically Wesleyan, authentically. Methodist. Because if we do that, then we might begin to see our nation transformed. Not because we have good political stuff, not because we have functioning political parties, not because we have good legislation or whoever the president is and all that kind of stuff. All of that is, is superfluous. Look, they're all Caesar at the end of the day. What we really need is a movement of the Holy Spirit a movement of scriptural holiness. That movement changed England in the 18th century in very significant ways. There's a reason why England did not go the way of the French Revolution and manufacturing social change at the point of a musket or the point of a sword. We're seeing more and more of that in our own culture as people make social change and shut every other door. And let's be clear, both sides do this. What we need to see is a change of heart, a change of heart only made possible by the Holy Spirit and by spreading scriptural holiness. That's the kind of people we need to be. That needs to be our focus. So the question that this sermon leaves us with is, do we have the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit at work in us? Are we demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit in our own lives? For, forget the nation for a moment. Do we exude the fruit of the Spirit in our online interactions? In what we post on Facebook or Twitter or any social media? Do we reflect the fruit of the Spirit in our conversations with others? In the ways in which we carry ourselves? In the ways we, in which we care for others? Our country's been exposed in so many ways as very divided. And the point for us is not to take one side or the other, but to say, let us be on God's side. Let us really lean into the fruit of the Spirit. And to ask the question, where is this kind of scriptural Christianity? Where is this kind of scriptural holiness found in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, and in our nation? And if it is not found there, If it's not found in us, then that is the gift that needs to be cultivated, the gift of the Spirit, the ordinary gift that can transform us from the inside out. Well, I want to encourage you to go and read scriptural Christianity because I think this is one of the great sermons in the canon and, and, and. Listen to it personally. Imagine you are sitting there in those pews at St. Mary's or sitting in the pews of your own church and John Wesley comes and preaches this sermon. I hope that it grabs hold of you like it grabs hold of me. Once again, if you would like to ask questions about this sermon or others that we've done, or if you have comments, I encourage you to email those to me at pastorbk at tlumc. Dot org. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rev B. Kaler. I encourage you to invite others to join in this podcast. I did hear from a church in North Carolina this past week who's using this as a basis for, study for uh, a study of Wesley's sermons, and feel free to use this in any way you can. I am richly blessed by studying these sermons, and I'm a pastor, not a Wesleyan theologian, I look at these from a pastoral sense. I think about how I would deliver these messages to my own congregation in an updated way. I hope if you're a preacher or a lay preacher or a Bible study teacher, you'll be thinking about these things and and asking the same kinds of questions and making the same kinds of observations and, and assertions that Wesley is making as we think about what it means to be Methodist, and what it means to be Christians who spread scriptural holiness across the land. These are important texts for us, and I hope that uh, you will continue to join us as we work through them. Thanks for joining me this week. We'll see you back here again next Wednesday for Wednesdays with Wesley. Have a great week.